So we come to the, the final installment uh, in the life of Elijah that we're looking at, and the reading tonight is in Second Kings and chapter 2. And we're really going to be looking at the whole idea of the legacy that uh, Elijah left uh, behind. Uh, there was an immediate legacy as far as the, uh, the folks that were, that were there at the time, but he leaves a legacy for us as well, and uh, we're going to be touching on some of these points uh, during the course of the message. So let's read uh, from Second Kings chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho, and the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Amen. May God 
touch our hearts with his, with his word uh, tonight. It's been uh, quite a journey, um, this life of Elijah. Uh, we followed him from that earliest moment when he stood before King Ahab, uh, right up until this time. There have been highs and lows. Uh, the big point, of course, was what happened on Mount Carmel, but there were lots of lows as well, uh, epitomized by the time in the wilderness, hiding under the, uh, the broom tree when he prayed to God to take his life away. Uh, a whole expanse and range of emotions. A man just like us. A man um, who demonstrated tremendous faith in God. The power, the spirit and power of Elijah. And now we come to this point here. It's his final day on earth. And maybe the obvious kind of question to ask as we look back over the course of his life is exactly what has he achieved? Uh, what difference did Elijah make? And, and what was his legacy? Um, and I think this point about legacy is written large actually over this chapter. Uh, the whole idea of inheritance is mentioned in verse 19. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, uh, Elisha asked. Now, at a material level, um, all that he leaves behind as he's taken up in the chariot of fire is his cloak. You know, that was his material legacy. Nothing else was left. But from the point of view of a significant spiritual legacy, it's much bigger than that. And he leaves behind some, some tremendous points. Um, it's maybe not something that we think about an awful lot, uh, but uh, the whole idea of spiritual legacy is actually a very important one. Uh, I think every single one of us, we're not trying to be too morbid here, but uh, I think all of us are, are meant to pass something on. You know that our lives mean something, and we leave something uh, behind. And of course, we're not just talking about natural wills and testaments you know you i remember reading a book called the testament and the the thing started off with the scene in a a lawyer's office and the family have all been summoned and he goes to the safe and he opens it and he reads the will out and of course it's not entirely what people have expected and the story goes on from there and and the legacies that some of them were expecting to have did not materialize but we are talking here about about a spiritual legacy. Uh, and just to get our heads round about that kind of concept, I mean, the Apostle Paul understood that very well. I've got a couple of verses to, uh, to point you to. The first one is in Second Timothy chapter 2. You know, this is his last will and testimony, this book actually, Second Timothy, uh, to his young friend, Timothy. And this is what he says to him in verse 2 of chapter 2, the things that you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others also. I mean, he's leaving something for Timothy, but he wants Timothy, in turn, to pass that on to somebody else. And, and that, in a sense, should be the way in which our lives work. You know, we should be disciples who are making disciples. We should be passing on something to others. Now again, Paul recognizes this. If you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
And this kind of carries on from some of the points that were made this morning about the importance of equipping each other for, for the work of the ministry. And uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I mean, what he's effectively doing is saying, I'm passing on this baton to you. You know, my time is up. You know, my race is run, but the race itself is not over. And you're the guy that's coming up behind. You're the next generation. And I'm passing on this baton of the faith to you so that the thing never dies. And so I think that's a concept that we need uh, to bear in mind in a whole range of things. We need to, to think about that as far as our families are concerned. You know, passing on things that are of eternal value and to be serious about that. You know, in these relay races, it seems to happen at virtually every major championship as far as Britain is concerned. You know, they don't get the baton in the right time. You know, they've got that space that they've got to pass the thing on in. And if you're out with that space, then it's a foul. You're penalized. There is a sense in which, you know, when you, when you particularly think of that in a family context, you know, it's not entirely true, thank God, but there is an optimum time, perhaps, when that baton has to be passed on. You know, and so we, we, have to, we have to, again, be serious about this concept of, of passing on what is important in our families and in the church and in the communities. Uh, in which we live. I've told you this before, but I'm I'm just going to mention it again because it's relevant and because I I frequently think about it and because I saw the book today where this poem is uh, about when my grandfather died uh, and my dad was going through his papers uh, on the very top, uh, it was a copy of this poem which is called The Legacy and it was written by a a Shetland lawyer who's got a, a book of poems that he's published And the whole idea of it is drawn from the incident uh, in the Old Testament when Aaron the priest dies. And of course, the Levites didn't have any property. You know, so he had no physical inheritance that he could leave to his sons. But what he could leave was his priestly garments because his son was going to be the priest after him, the high priest after him. And the poem kind of starts off, I meant to bring the copy, and I'll probably struggle to say it from memory. Um, You know, what shall he leave his son? You know, he doesn't have herds, he doesn't have silver, he doesn't have flocks, but this he has. He has the the godly raiment of a saintly man. And, And the poem goes on to say, you know, that son while entering to the throne of grace, can say, how well my father knew this place. You know, how oft his voice I've heard in fervent prayer. You know, rich is that son, that richly dowered heir. You know, that's, that's legacy, isn't it? That is spiritual inheritance. And, and, and salvation doesn't run in the blood. We know that. But there are things that Elijah was concerned about as a spiritual legacy. 
And, and, and I think that is a concept that is important for us. So let's look at some of the, the parts of his legacy. Number one, we're going to look at some schools. Schools that he left behind. You notice that, that uh, he traveled during the course of this final day to a variety of locations. And at those locations, there were the company of the prophets. These, these were schools, Bible schools, seminaries, you know, in the earliest. They may well have been initially set up by Samuel. You'll notice if you went back and looked at the life of Samuel that he also kind of did this rotational tour every year round about these locations. I mean, what is encouraging is now at the end of Elijah's life when at one point the prophets of Baal seem to be in the ascendancy and there seem to be so many of them now there has been this re-establishment under the kind of uh, leadership of Elijah, these schools of the prophets. And, you know, there's obviously a fair number of people in every one. Fifty prophets are mentioned at uh, the Jordan, and you would uh, like to think that in all the other locations there's probably a similar amount of people there. And so in each of these places there are people who are being trained to be men of God, and to continue the teaching of the Word of God, that was part of his legacy that, that he, let, that he uh, left behind. And the places, I think, where these were situated were of significance. And so he's walking to each of them. And as he's walking there, he's, he's reflective. You know, he, he wants to see these schools for the last time. He wants to see these boys for the last time. You know, and think about that. And uh, he's reflective. And they probably chose these places because of the historical significance of the names. Now, we get that because, you know, when, when he comes, for instance, to the one that is at the Jordan, you know, and he takes his cloak and he, and he strikes the water and the water parts on the right and the left side, I mean... And that, that just reminds you completely about what had happened historically at the Jordan. You know, all those years ago when Israel came out of, of Egypt and, and they were delivered and redeemed, you know, and they approached the, the Jordan River and, 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 and they were about to enter into the Promised Land. It wasn't just the Red Sea that had parted, but the Jordan parted before they entered into the Promised Land. And it's almost like a bit of a reenactment of this. And, and so that there's almost like a reminder in all of these places about historical events that had taken place. And, and I'm sure he's reflective of all of that. And that's why I think when, when uh, the, the, the people in the school come out and they say to Alicia, you know, you know what's going to happen today, don't you? And he says, I, I, I mean, I, I do know. Just, you know, don't go on about it. Uh, and I think he was saying that for more than one reason. He was saying it, yes, because of himself, he's, he, he's, he's reflective. But on that last day, I'm sure Elijah is going through the significance of the historical points of each place. What happened at the Jordan? What happened at Bethel? Bethel was the place where Jacob had the vision of the ladder set up between heaven and earth. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending. It was the place where Abraham had made his altar and worshipped God. I mean, it was a place of enormous historical significance. And, 
He looks over the land and remembers just a few years back how it had been so devastated by the, by the worship of Baal and Ahab's reign. And now there are these grass seeds of worship that are beginning to grow again. The worship of God is beginning to be established with the formation of these schools. And so this is part of the legacy that he has. Jericho is the, is the other place that's mentioned. And of course, we all know what happened at Jericho. It was the place of the great victory. The first major city that they, they met in entering the, the promised land and, and, and the walls came down. And, you know, there, there was the a demonstration of God's grace and the salvation of Rahab. Uh, as well as, as his power against, against his enemies. So he reflects as he, as he journeys between these different schools. But the legacy is probably mainly seen in the man who was going to be his successor. That's uh, Elisha, of course. And Elisha recognizes this. And... Um, there's a bit of kind of reverse psychology, I, I, I feel, in, in the way that uh, Elijah speaks to him on this occasion. You know, he's, he's traveling between the different places, and he says, you know, I'm going on to the next place, but uh, just you stay here, Elisha. You know, I, I, I'll manage myself. I'll go on uh, alone. And I think the point that's being made is this. He's, he's, he's actually giving... Um, Elisha, a, a kind of get out of jail card. He, he's, he's saying to them, he's saying to them, you know, I'm going to leave you today, and and that really means that that you're going to have to step into my shoes. Um, and you've been my assistant for all those years, and uh, but today it's going to be different because you're going to have to take responsibility, and and the mantle will fall on you. And are you up to that? And do you think you can cope with that? And you think you have it within you? Because if you don't, you can just stay here. And I'll go on, and you won't see me again. And I think there's a little bit of reverse psychology, as I say, in that they're saying, you know, stay with me, stick with this, you know, be committed, you know, stand up and be counted and press on and grasp this because, because you were the man who was called for this role. And of course that takes us back, doesn't it, to, to the actual call of Elisha, which is in First Kings chapter 19, if you want to just turn back there. And what we have to remember is that the call of Elisha, it came on the back of, of that down period. In Elijah's life, you know, when, when God had to say to him, I mean, what, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, he wasn't just saying geographically, why are you here? But he was talking about his whole state of mind and his whole approach and his cynicism and all the rest of it. What, what are you doing here in this kind of place that you found yourself in? And God says, you know, I want you to go back. And among other things, he said, you have to anoint somebody who is to be your successor. And that is Elisha. He was told who it was going to be. And there must have been a, almost a kind of sense of oh, disappointment, I think, with, with, with Elijah. You know, my time's up. You know, a line has been drawn underneath this. You know, my job's done. 
and uh, there's, there, there's somebody else going on, but, you know, that, that's the end as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, God had the succession plan, though. And there, there is always the next man coming along. And the work of the Lord is never dependent on one person. You know, and there's always the tendency to think, well, you know, if Elijah goes, how are we going to cope? You know, how, could we, how, how can we replace him? You know, he's irreplaceable. What a man he was. And yet God is saying, there is a replacement. I know who he is. I know where he stays. And I want you to anoint him because the job will go on. And, and you, you look at the call of Elisha there in, in 1 Kings 19. And Elisha got it. He knew what it meant when Elijah visited the family home that day. And he wanders onto the grounds. And he sees out in the field, Elisha plowing with the oxen. And as he walks past him, he throws his mantle or his cloak round about him. And Elijah's very kind of blasé about this. I mean, again, deliberately, you know. Um, because Elisha says, let me just go and say farewell to my parents before I come and follow you. He understands what that means. The very fact that he threw threw his cloak or draped his cloak over his shoulders. He knew the significance of this. This meant that he was being called to be the disciple and ultimately the successor with the uniform of Elijah. And Elijah says to him, "Ah, what have I done to you? You It's no big deal. You know, he's almost trying to put him off. He's almost trying to say, you know, there's nothing in this because he wants to, he wants to prove his sincerity and his reality and how serious he is. And I've heard stories about, about people who have, who have had some sort of interest in serving the Lord in another culture. And the people that they've written to have almost deliberately been a little bit offhand with them. Testing them. Testing their sincerity. Are, are you in for this? Or is this just some kind of passing fad uh, that's crossed crossed your mind for the moment. So, so Elisha, on this day, as the successor, you know, understands what is about to happen. Now, it had been a bit of a process. Elisha, we, we, we haven't heard an awful lot about him. He's traveled around. He's been with Elijah. Um, uh, the only thing that I could really find that was a commentary on those years when Elisha followed them around. There's a verse in Second Kings chapter 3, and it's at verse number 11. Um, and it says this, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. How's that for a job title? He used to clean his hands. He used to pour water on his hands. That, that was his job, you know. What are you doing today, Elisha? I'm going to be pouring water on Elijah's hands. What are you going to do tomorrow, Elisha? I mean, the point is this. He was his servant, you know. It was a menial job. And, and what is it the Lord Jesus teaches us? The person who is faithful in little will be counted faithful eventually in much. You know, oftentimes we want to kind of promote ourselves straight away into the Premier League, you know, and, and really what we have to learn is this, that, 
You know, it's being faithful in the little things that proves you for the times when you have to stand up in the public arena. You know, I think I've mentioned this before. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, used to say, it's almost the worst thing in the world for anybody to be put forward publicly before you're ready for it. You know, you have to be proved and you have to be tested. And that, that is what Elisha had happening to him. And, and that's a lesson, I think, for, for, for all of us. You know, humbly, quietly, in the background, to be prepared to serve, just for the sake of serving, not for the sake of recognition or applause or what people say. Although it's nice to be encouraged. Of course it is. So, so here is Elisha. Now, we get to this kind of inheritance word that I was pointing out to you uh, earlier on, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. And um, Elijah speaks to his successor, and he says to him, Tell me, what can I, what can I do for you before I'm taken? And, and here is what he says. And we have to think about this. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, that that is inheritance language. I mean, if if we go back into the book of Genesis and we think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what we learn is this, that it was the firstborn who received the double portion. I mean, that's really what he's saying here. That's the code. That's the subtext here. He's he's saying, I want to be recognized as, as the firstborn. You know, as the, as the official successor. And the, with the recognition of that, and, and along with that goes the double portion of your spirit. And um, he says, you know, if you see me, when I'm t- taken from you, it, it will be yours. Again, I think that's just the point that, you know, stick with me right until the end. Be committed. Uh, and, 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 you know, if I see that commitment, that, that, that will be yours. Next uh, point of legacy I want to speak about um, is at the very moment when Elijah is taken away. Because I think there is something particularly for us that we can take from the way that Elijah was was taken to heaven in in the chariot uh, of fire. So they're walking along and they're talking and very quickly, very suddenly, this, this chariot of fire and horses of fire appear, and Elijah is taken up to heaven uh, in a whirlwind. And, um, you know, th- these are representative of, of the power of God. I mean, when, when you, you thought of warfare in those days, and you thought of military strength, you know, it was chariots and horses that you thought about. And, and, and part of what... Elisha is saying because what he comments is my father the chariots and horsemen of Israel and he puts Elisha together with that and and there is a sense in which you know all of the ministry of Elijah had had been kind of had been spiritual warfare against the prophets of Baal and all that Baal worship stood for and 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 under God he he had been the instrument of God in that battle. And he was almost the chariot and the horseman of God. 
during that particular era of, of, of history. And there's a kind of recognition of that, of, of, of Elijah's role in that great conflict when they had fought the good fight against the forces of evil. But of course, it go, it's not just Elijah. It's, it's, it goes beyond that. And again, if you, if you went uh, further into Second Kings, um, uh, and you looked at chapter 6 and verse 17, this is later on during the ministry of Elisha, when, uh, you know, the game's up almost as far as his servant is concerned. The, the city is surrounded and there's no way out. And he makes this prayer uh, in verse 17, open his eyes, Lord, so he might see. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was only one of these chariots that came and it swung low, you know, to carry him home. Um, but they were all there. And they were there all the time. If we have the eyes of faith to believe it. And so, so here's a message for us. A legacy that comes right down to our days. Right round about us, there are the, the horsemen and the chariots of fire. There's the strength of God. There's, the, there, there's, there's what he can do, that insurmountable power that Paul prayed for in Ephesians that we looked at recently, that we might know that and the power that he has for us who believe in Christ. The great power that raised Christ from the dead, that takes away our sin and will transform us and will, will do for us what happened to Elijah, will take us to heaven. You know, the power of God all around us today. There are these chariots, even although with physical eyes, we cannot see them. God's angels, God's in all his power for the sake of his church and for his people. So, so why was it that Elijah didn't die? Because there are only two people in the Old Testament uh, who never died. Enoch who walked with God and God took him in the book of Genesis, and Elijah. Well, why was it that Elijah didn't see death? Well, I mean, maybe we will never entirely know, but I've got a couple of thoughts as I was reflecting on this. You know, the whole battle, the whole battleground of that day, of course, was, was Baal, the fertility God, the God that gave life. That's what the people believed and that's what they followed. Their whole kind of way of life was all tied up, this agricultural society. Life and death, Baal worship. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, here's Elijah, my man, and, you know, in the final analysis, you know, he'll, he'll not even die. It's a final message that, that knocks on the head the whole philosophy and the idolatry of of Baal worship. I said there was two people that didn't die. There may be a lot more, of course, and it may be us, you know, because this is a reminder to me about the fact that we also may be snatched up one day without dying and be taken uh, into the very presence of God. This is what Christ has promised. If I go, I'll, I'll come again. And I will receive you 
you unto myself that where I am there you will be also Paul says you know show you a mystery uh, you know we, we, we may not all die you know uh, the trumpet will sound the dead in Christ will rise and, you know, and we will be changed and we will be incorruptible and we need to comfort one another with the, the words that come from the pages of scripture that some of us may never die and Christ will return and take us to, to be with himself others of us who will die will be resurrected and taken up to the presence of Christ as well and it's a reminder to us of that wonderful hope that's so countercultural. The whole of our society, you know, with, with so many funny beliefs about life and death, the majority thinking that we go into the ground and that's the end of it. And for the Christian, there is the, the wonderful hope that we will be taken into the presence of Christ and we will have and experience eternal life. I mean, that comes to me out of this particular episode. Of course, I couldn't help but think about uh, the transfiguration scene that we read this morning because Elijah was there at that occasion when, when Christ was talking about his death and how he would bring that to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So all those centuries later, you know, I don't know if it was the same chariot that you know, brought him down onto the Mount of Transfiguration, but he was there. And I don't suppose at one level, you know, he had an awful lot to contribute to the conversation. They're talking about Christ's death. You know, and Moses was there, and uh, he could talk about his death, a remarkable one. Um, Elijah maybe just had to kind of say, well, you know, I've, got, I've not got a lot to say here, because, of course, I didn't die. You know, what can I say about your death or, or about my experience of death that adds to this conversation? You know, Elijah was taken in triumph. You know, we, we read these verses from Ephesians and uh, the psalm on which part of Ephesians 4 was based this morning about God ascending on high, you know, and, 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 and a victorious procession. Uh, following in his train and it's, it's the, the glory of the ascension and victory that's being pictured you know and that's exactly what Elijah's journey to heaven was like he didn't have the despair and the pain of death he went straight to glory you know with all the victory of that procession up to heaven would Christ have wanted that? That was, that was part of the temptation of Satan at some points to Christ. Just miss the cross out. Just miss the death out. Just miss the pain out and go straight to glory. There's a shortcut. You can bypass that Calvary thing. You don't have to have it. Not at all. He spoke, they spoke about his decease that he should bring to fulfillment. The glory would be there for Christ eventually, but there would be the suffering. There would be the death. And all that was tied up with that, the death of the cross, and then the glory would come. That's what Elijah spoke about with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, just as we finish, 
The last point, the last point of legacy, the cloak or the mantle. You know, that's the, the phrase that's passed into common use, isn't it? The, the passing on of the mantle. As he goes up into heaven, the mantle flutters down to the ground. And, and Elisha picks it up. You know, that's the baton. You know, he picks it up. And what he does is he walks to the Jordan and he strikes the Jordan River in the same way as Elijah has just done. And as he does that, he says something. And he says, where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is he? I mean, Elijah's gone. I'm bereft. My father has gone, you know. But where is the Lord God of Elijah? And what happens when he does that is the waters part and the answer is there. He's here. He hasn't left. He hasn't gone. He will remain. He will never go away. He will always be with you. The man might change. The personalities might come and go. The names might be different. But God is the same. God is the same. And that is the message of the legacy for us. Generations, centuries further down the road. The the God of Elijah is exactly the same for us. He was a man who was just like us. Elijah the Tishbite. An ordinary man. But a man who had an extraordinary God. So that's the the final section in the book of uh, Kings that we're looking at as far as the life of Elijah is concerned. And may these uh, points about his legacy uh, last and remain with us. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for pointing us to yourself. Um, Thank you that you remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, help us to take encouragement from that, as Elisha did on that occasion. And we pray for each one of us that we will live our lives in the strength and the power of your word and of your promises with the presence of Christ with us, as we ask in his name. Amen.